Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. This is episode two of season two. The blood is flowing, we're loosening up, and I've got the Rocky theme blaring in the background, but not really for royalties and copyright reasons, and we're ready for what comes next. Today, Jimmy and I are going to check in with our old pal Chris Klein, who today is the Senior Manager for General Education Evaluation Faculty at Western Governors University. Long-time listeners will remember Chris from our very first interview episode way back in 2017, which we will post as an encore presentation on Monday. Particularly eagle-eared listeners will remember that Chris also appeared in our Constitution Day discussion in 2019, where he talked about his research on the Whiskey Rebellion and the early Constitutional period. In this episode, we're going to see what Chris has been up to since our last conversation. So, what have you been up to? Well, yeah, so in terms of what I'm doing now, I'm still with Western Governors University. A couple different positions since we last chatted. I am now actually a senior manager of general education evaluation faculty and our excellence award program. So I've had a couple promotions since we last talked. So excited about that and just moving forward in my career. Uh, WGU is a great place to be, you know, just in terms of being student centric and I'm just really, really, really happy there. So enjoy doing that. I am also working on a doctorate of education. I am almost through all the coursework and so that's been exciting and that was something that i started actually right as the pandemic began um february of last year um was my very first course and welcome to grad went, school exactly <laughs> you know? so so you can't go anywhere else. you can't do anything you can't go anywhere you work at home so what better thing to do but go back to school you know and uh so but it's timing's been great and uh it's been a good experience so moving through that looking to complete this is just kind of rough right now but probably may of 2023 okay will be my completion date so that's exciting what um, school do you go into if you don't uh, liberty university okay uh just right down i live in lynchburg so it's right here i'm actually i'm local but i'm still online so it was one of those things where you know i'd actually i'll be honest i'd looked at different schools and things like that and uh settled on liberty so good program i'm excited about it it's something i never thought i would do i just kind of honestly i you know we had all those conversations where i'd be thinking about when we did the um learning community on what next grad school things like that and you know we talked about the cost and things like that and the only reason i never thought i would do it is i got to that age of 40 and i figured i would never get the the outcome of it in terms of a financial end after you make the investment and things like that. And then I just figured I was still going to look around anyhow. And just with the direction that my career had taken with kind of like more on the admin side, I'll say, you know, in term, instead of the, the faculty side and, you know, kind of supervising faculty and all that, it, the EDD made a whole lot of sense and the higher ed focus and found out it wasn't quite as expensive as I thought it was going to be. So figured why not do it and kind of, it was always a dream to have a doctor's degree. I just never thought it'd be an EDD, but I never thought my career would go the direction it was because I used, you know, when I was an undergrad, 
You know, we all think that we'll be at Johns Hopkins by the time we're 40 and we'll have authored three books and everything will just be perfect, you know, and then life hits you and it doesn't work out that way. So, (laughs) but uh, I I think what I would say about that, though, is, you know, the professional doctorates are something that any student should definitely always keep in mind as a potential possibility. Um, It doesn't always have to be the research focus. And also with that, it's important to note there is a large element of research focus on the professional side as well. So, you know, it's it's not an all or nothing type game, but there's a whole lot of different avenues that you could take some, take a career or your career could take you and then it fits a, a different type of professional doctorate. So have you decided on a topic yet? I have not. I'm still just trying to, a couple different ways I've been thinking about going. Um, My work at WGU, like with our Excellence Award program, focuses all on student recognition. And we've done a lot of internal research on the benefits and the positives of student recognition. We actually have a blog post that we just submitted to Evolution Blog. So that's awaiting publication, but it highlights our research around the positive impact of student recognition and the persistence lift that are provided uh, to students as a result of just kind of recognizing their good work. It focuses on the uh, the advantages of recognizing and cheering versus warning and things like that. So really just trying to put a focus on something along those lines, because that's really, it's captured a lot of my time as a result of work, but it's just so fascinating to look at and really interesting too, but I'm not sure what I would do with it at this point, but that's just kind of my initial thoughts, uh, taking that a different way, maybe, you know, different programs, uh, you know, I, I don't know yet, but kind of thinking about something like that. Right. So they'll look at positive reinforcement and reward versus, well, for lack of a better word, a more negative approach. And Yeah, you know, and actually we just presented, um, myself and one of my team members, we presented at uh, the Online Learning Consortium and then also to the AACNU uh, within the last month. And, you know, just really cheering versus warning you know we warn students if you don't do this you're going to get dropped in the course you know but then all of a sudden you have a student that's working their way through and you know they're really struggling and then they get an award from a faculty member you know just says hey great job you know and what we did is in our internal research is just focused on any any student who gets an award and this is getting a little bit more specific than maybe you wanted, but anybody who gets an award has the opportunity to respond to it. So we took and analyzed those student responses based on what were they saying about the award. And what we found out was, you know, most students, like 15% of our students said about to quit, ready to give up. And then they got that one award, you know? So while it, it puts the focus on how, when we think something is maybe small and menial, it's not to the student because you never know what's going on on the other side. What's so amazing about that is, so I took my detour from higher education, God, three years, almost three years ago now. Um, You bailed on me about two and a half years ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. October 15th, 2018. Not Mm -hmm. like I'm counting days. Um, Yeah, me either. (laughs) Rob hasn't forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but what's really amazing is it, it comes down to, it seems to come down to human psychology because what you what you're saying resonates with every everything that I've learned and the the approaches that um, that are most impactful with employees. So yes, if you give people raises and money, who's going to turn down raises and money? But at the end of the day, what keeps people is good relationships with their supervisors, knowing that they are that their work is um, that their work is valued knowing that they're valued and knowing that they're part of something bigger. So it's that idea that, um, 
you know, those, you know, an outdated term, those attaboys, you know, attaboy, really good, you know, using a gender term, but, uh, but really like it goes a long way with employees, especially if they're having a difficult day or if you have, you know, not that anybody has this, but some employees on your team that just aren't performing up to, to par of expectations and others that are overperforming or not overperforming, but performing beyond expectations. And if you don't give the people that are, that are performing beyond expectations, that positive reinforcement, um, they wonder why they're even bothering. Right. Right? Like, so why am I even doing this? So-and-so over there sits, sits under a tree half the day and doesn't even do his work. And I'm here, like I've blown through all my work orders and plus five that were on schedule for tomorrow. And I don't even get any recognition. So it's, it's, it's really interesting how those it's, it must come down to human psychology and the dopamine release of, of reward and um, being shown that you're valued. Yeah. And I think you put the, you know, you take that and then apply it to the online learning format, for example, you know, um, the stu- okay, I'm a student myself, you know, so I'll apply it myself here. You know, you're just learning on your own and nobody realizes what that feels like until you've actually done it. I mean, I, I've been an online student before, so it's, it's nothing new, but when you focus on the idea of getting that positive reinforcement, just that little good note or anything like that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I submitted an assignment Sunday night and I got my uh, assignment back today with my grade and um, my instructor gave me two extra bonus points on my essay because of all the detail I included. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it, it was just a little note and you might look at it and say it's two points, but you know what, when I read that, I had a big smile on my face when I was reading that feedback, you know, <laughs> just because it was just, it was recognized, you know, as far as I was concerned, when I submitted it, I answered the question. I felt good about my answer. I felt comfortable, you know, but it was, it was a little bit of recognition that it means a lot to people. So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good characteristics there. Uh, what else have I done? Um, I have a real estate license now. I am a Virginia licensed real estate agent. Uh, just Congratulations. Saying, thank you. It was actually before I did that for two and a half years now. Um, it was something that just kind of did out of the out of the blue. It was my wife's idea. I tell everybody when she shows up in my office door with her laptop in one hand and a yellow legal pad in the other, I know to be scared. Um, and out of that, it was, she thought I should get a real estate license, which it, I'll be honest with you, totally out of context for me in terms of that line of work, but it's been really fun. It's something we do together. So kind of like a hobby. Um, but at the same time, when I went back, I'm, I'm a firm, always been a firm believer in just teaching yourself something new every year. And uh, for that what I did that particular year was just focus on Virginia real estate law. And so it was totally interesting. Year before that, I got my um, certification to teach English as a second language, as a foreign language, excuse me, not second language, foreign language. So, you know, just doing something different every year, always trying to focus on professional development, keep your mind fresh. That one year just happened to be real estate. So like I said, it's been a lot of fun, but I've done a lot in the last few years and it's just been really exciting, really encouraging and uh, forward thinking. That's very cool. Yeah, I almost ended up, I, I got this close to actually getting a, um, a, a, a paralegal degree <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, was, it was partially in response to the academic job market, which is always a disaster. And I was just trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? I guess I go back to school. <laughs> so <laughs> ended up not, not needing it and didn't finish it. But I did get, but I, I do have uh, 
an irritating amount of knowledge on like intellectual property law because I ended up focusing on that for a couple of, a couple of semesters. Uh, yes, our, our paralegal, Dr. Denning, will see you now. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I was looking I forward to having those interviews. So <laughs> I would hate to be in your class discussing, um, uh, you know, use of sources and how how much you can actually use. So I was taking it at the community college where I was actually teaching at the time. Like the some of the instructors knew that I was I was an adjunct there, and so they're like. I know you from somewhere <laughs> like in the middle of class. And I'm like, yeah, I know <laughs> I teach history. <laughs> and so, yeah, I have students around me that are they're you know, they're like half my age and um, yeah, it was a very awkward situation, but it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. Chris, now that you um, have your real estate license, have you developed any quirky habits like Phil from Modern Family, like tightrope walking or owning a uh, magic shop? <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. Nothing like that. Um, we do have rental property and we do some short-term rental and long-term rental and things like that. That's, I guess that's the closest we've ever gotten to a hobby with it. But it, it's interesting because like now my wife and I live. You know, we'll drive around, we'll see a house for sale and or I'll have a showing or something like that. And it's, you know, like stand back and think, hmm what could we do with this? You know? <laughs> and uh, we're, we also are now like collectors of whole things, furniture and appliances, because you never know when you're going to need something for one of your rentals. Right. So <laughs> it's just, uh, that, that's the closest we've got with it, but it, it's, it's fun. Yeah. The uh, housing market is just insane here. I mean, it's kind of insane everywhere, I guess, right these days, yeah. but in Ohio or in the Columbus area, it's just, there's just no inventory because people are people are scared to sell because they're afraid they're not going to find a new place to go to. And so any house that does come on the market, it's sold within hours for way over the asking price. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah, it's- all of that, um, all of the talk about flight from major California cities seems to only be um, a reality for renters uh, because housing prices, I can tell you, have not gone down. And in fact, rental prices... Well, they were probably at their lowest in January or February, I think, um, have definitely started to turn around. Mm-hmm. So we're glad that we got into a bigger space when we did for the price that we did, because it, it didn't take long for the real estate market in San Francisco to recover from COVID. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk for a while there where people are like, ooh, now that everyone's going to be working from home full time, people are going to start moving out to the rural areas. And then things started to get better. And so the, suddenly the maybe we're not going to be working from home forever. So wait, nope, cancel those plans. We got to get back to the, uh, <laughs> to where we started. That's the thing you used to hear and every now and then you still do, but like things closing down in New York city and whether or not they were going to be permanently impacted by the pandemic. Like you just said, Rob, are people going to move to the rural areas and things like that? And, you know, I'm sure some people might have done that or whatever the case might be, but I could just never in my mind visually see like New York city, like becoming that, desolate place like it was being described that it was leaning towards because of remote work and things like that i i just i had a hard time envisioning that same and, uh, i i think Def- that was a lot of speculation that that everybody was all of a sudden going to shift from home i think and i've you know obviously we've all worked from home for a while but I, I do think that there's always been a desire even amongst those of us who do work from home i mean you know i do travel for work well i did travel for work every now and then to salt lake city and uh always looked forward to that so i, I think those that have shifted to that home-based work i, I have a feeling there's probably going to be some that want to go back you know there might be yeah. some that start to do more of a hybrid model you know but at the same time i don't think it's uh all dramatically altered the way folks thought it would. 
No, I'm, I'm probably looking at a hybrid model. Um, once we figure out when and how the people that went remote are coming back into the office. Um, but I was going, it was a shift for me because, well, when in my previous incarnation as an associate dean, I was in the office, I had to move to Manchester, New Hampshire, was in the office every day <clears throat> until I was able to take that position um, remote. Uh, but then when I moved into my new role, I've, I've been in the office every day until last, well, March 16th was the last day we were in the office. Shelter in place happened in San Francisco starting at 8 p.m. that night. So March 17th, um, 2020 was the first day of being fully remote. And uh, everybody who went remote at that point is still remote currently. Yeah, there's a lot of people at uh, SNHU that were working in the um, on-site and a lot of them just still gripe about not being happy with having to be remote. And so there, there are, there are definitely some people that are really looking forward to getting back to, um, back to going, going into work on site. There are a few people that worked on site that have gotten a little taste of working remote and they're hoping that they'll be able to get to keep working remote, even though they're in the area. But there's, there are definitely some who are grumbling about, uh, who never stopped grumbling about having to work from home and Hey, some people like the camaraderie. Some people have to be around, you know, and I get yeah. it. I mean, everybody's different and things like that. I, I think it's all in how you looked at it beforehand. Um, you know, obviously working remote during a pandemic and having the ability to continue uninterrupted um, was a good thing. You know, <laughs> I mean, no complaints there at all. So it's just been an interesting 2020. And I, I, I think I'm looking to see what lessons did we learn yeah you know where do where's our key takeaways from it i was talking to somebody about this time last year and i i really felt at that point in time that we were going to have this rapid change you know just as it relates to social safety nets and things like that you know was that going to develop was our infrastructure going to be a focus and it seems like now all that is kind of starting to come into play um a little bit and we'll just see how far it goes you know i think we infrastructure side it's it's nice to hear a focus on things like broadband technology being included with infrastructure yeah. um, in the 21st century and recognizing that it's more than roads and highways and bridges um, which are all important don't get me wrong but you know infrastructure is now much deeper than that in the 21st century so um i, I think this pandemic has i know it has it's exposed our gaps and our holes and our deficiencies and I just hope that we see those now and take them as opportunities to fix them. And so that, you know, if this ever happens again, God forbid, um, you know, that it'll be a better experience um, in terms of the ultimate outcome, the length of it, and that we'll be able to move forward much quicker. So maybe that's wishful thinking, but, you know. No, I have a similar, um, <laughs> you may remember, uh, about a year ago, I put out a video for all of the instructors and students. Um, basically, I was kind of introducing some of the special measures that SNHU was going to take for mm -hmm. um, like the extended leave policy and extended incomplete. And so I put together a video for everybody watching. In that video, I was talking about how I think we're, gonna, we're about to see the best that mankind has to offer because we're going to all, we're all in this together. We're all going to wear masks. Everyone's going to be cooperating and it's going to be social distancing. It's going to be amazing. We're going to see a new era in human cooperation. 
And then, you know, and, and then 2020 happened and <laughs> that, that prophecy didn't quite come to fruition, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I might have to record a new one so with, with a medical on that. Yeah, I didn't see the insurrection coming. <laughs> no, no, no. And I mean, you know, what more can you put at the end of 2020 other than a presidential election? <laughs> that went on and on and yeah. on um and then an insurrection like you mentioned uh, i you know we definitely lived through some history mm -hmm. and um it was fascinating to observe <laughs> for lack of a better way to say it um but you know always try to find at least with me anyhow i always try to find the historical parallels and connections in, in events that happen and, and where they were and I have to say, I really struggled with the end of 2020 in terms of the things that were happening, you know, as a result of the election and then obviously January 6th and things like that. I, you know, it, it was, it was a challenging time, you know, and I think it was a challenging time for the nation. And um, I fear that we did not learn lessons from that though. Um, you Same. know, there, there was nothing that uh, key takeaways from that. Um, you know, you still have a focus on, um, half the nation divided over who really won the presidential election. And I find that unfortunate, you know, that that is putting into question our systems. That's putting into question our, uh, our entire democratic process, you know, yep. and that's not healthy when it's questioned like that. And it's most certainly not healthy when it's questioned by those who are in a position of authority. Um, that really undermines everything. Yep. So <clears throat> it's January sixth was just downright. I'm sorry. January sixth was just downright sad. You know, and when you saw what happened, and you know, to see scaling walls of the Senate chamber and rifling through Senate desks, um, you know, I hope that's never forgotten. And I'm glad there's images. I'm glad there's videos because those will be preserved for posterity, regardless of any talking points that anybody tries to purvey on mm -hmm. followers. Yeah, it seemed that from, well, probably, <clears throat> I know it started earlier, but uh, it seemed to be a pretty rapid um, development from 2015 to 2020. Um, the, the unwillingness to, to actually assess sources or to take into account what those sources are. Um, for me, it showed a really, it really put a spotlight on um, digital literacy Yep. and generational digital literacy. Um, th there's a great podcast on the New York Times called Down the Rabbit Hole, which was talking about, I mean, part of it was talking about QAnon and um, conspiracy theories. Um, but some of the major points that came out of that were it was really generational. Parents who didn't, were never exposed to online sources before, who were never, you know, weren't online a lot. The pandemic really changed that. Um, I mean, it, started to change before, but especially with the pandemic, not being able to go out and do things, you're online more, you're absorbing all of this information without a clear understanding of what's relevant, what's factual, what's reliable. So this idea that um, somebody's mother or grandmother could turn around and say, well, why, how can you tell me that this blog isn't reliable? It has a million views. You can't tell me that that's not reliable. And it's like, but what are, this, what are the sources of the information? And one of the advantages that students who, especially students online, um, that 
they've learned digital literacy. I mean, we, at least in the program, we used to like hammer it into their heads. You know, you don't just go to Wikipedia and copy down anything that's there. You can use Wikipedia to look at the bibliography, but um, you probably shouldn't be using sources that are slanted, like maybe the National Review. You know, maybe maybe you should be focusing on historical sources and data in order to develop clear arguments. And you should be considering multiple viewpoints as well. And that's something that I feel like there was a spotlight that was really shown on the inability or unwillingness of a lot of people to do that. And really, it also comes down to how many different things can you focus on? I think, you know, um, traditionally, there was that sense that the newspaper and history books and what you learn in school, that you could rely on that, that that was all real. That was that was real history. And as things just started to break down, it seems like all of those things were drawn into question with this logical fallacy that, well, if I've learned that this is wrong, then all of that information is suspect. So really all information is su- subjective. So I should just be able to pick and choose what I want to believe. And that definitely added to what we saw in 2020, I feel, and the ability for just anybody in a position with a soapbox to to stand up and say, no, I feel like this election was fraudulent or no, you know, they told me it was 66 million votes and I could win. I got 75 million. How is that possible? If you don't understand how math works, I guess that's yeah. possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I really felt after, uh, again, just thinking, you know, about institutions of government and, you know, basic American institutions, you know, that are outlined as outlined in the, the three branches of government and the constitution and all that. I, I really felt like the last four years have, I think they bent for the first time. And here's what I mean by that. After the 2012 election, I, was, I remember talking to somebody and I didn't share with them who I voted for or anything like that. And I'm not going to talk about that now, but their comment was that they were sad that their candidate lost. And my response to that was, you know, all elections have a winner and a loser. I said, but what we need to keep in mind is our system. Now, this is 2012, remember. Our systems are stronger than any one person and any one party. Presidents come and go. Parties change control of government. And we move on as a nation because our systems in place allow us to do that. I really, you know, after the last four years and and what we went through from the election to January 6th, I I think they were stressed for, I'm going to say, the first time in modern history. I I firmly believe that. I, I know people like to point to Watergate, you know, and all that. But when you look at Watergate, the thing is, it held. You know, everything held in place. Yeah, it was, you know, there was a lot of changes that came out of it. But what happened from that? The president was forced out of the White House. You know, he was forced to resign. Exactly. You know, at the end of the day, he resigned, you know, and then you can go on from there if you want to talk about the pardon or things like that. Uh, You know, uh, that's that's a different story, different issue. But, you know, it with what we've had up until this point, like I said, I think they were really stressed with the exception of the judiciary. It's just interesting to think about how the judiciary held. You know, you go back to that post-election cycle when we had, you know, lawsuits in various states and things like that, the judiciary held. And and I think that's a testament to, you know, the system in and of itself as it relates to a judicial process. You know, really putting the hold on those I mean there there was some 
there were some interesting lawsuits that were made and, and there were some judges that you would have expected just based on backgrounds and things like that that you know it would have probably have fit their political um you know ideology to go ahead and take those lawsuits but they didn't you know they always came back to the constitution and and i think that is a testament though but i i think the system was still stressed yep. so. Yeah, the, I think the uh, other thing you could do is, or sorry, Rob, um, I was just going to say, uh, you know, we talk about norms, constitutional norms. We've heard that a lot over the course of the last four years. And I, I think there's, you know, constitutional norms and there's political norms. Um, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about taking some of these norms and putting them in statute. You know, um, just because all 44 presidents or, you know, 45 or, you know, pick your number, have done something, it doesn't mean the others to come will. Right. You know, and, and maybe there's a time to start looking at things like that. I mean, we can talk about this return to normalcy now with, you know, the current president and, you know, because he's a product of, you know, he's come up through the system. He knows how things work and things like that. That's great uh, for the next four years. But then what? Yep. Right. You know, I mean, you could have a populist movement again. Mm -hmm. If you've got so. someone competent who <laughs> pursues the same types of stuff. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah. So it's fascinating to talk about, though. I mean, it really, really is when you start to dig into it and think about it and, you know, just everything that everything that happened. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really keeping it in mind as I talk to instructors and course designers and all that about reshaping the, the history programs at SNHU, because I even though we have been hammering digital literacy and all of that, it's it's pretty it's fairly good at the grad level, but the undergrad level is just not there. And so I'm going to be pushing for that type of thing in as, as we revise courses and all of that, because it's, it's something that everybody has to get much better at. And we need to be, that's the only way we're going to be able to break out of the, uh, the conspiracy, the, the QAnon mindset that a lot of that has kind of polarized everybody on both sides of it. It's not just, it's not just Republicans being bad. I mean, there are, there are folks on the left end of the spectrum that say just as crazy stuff. They don't, they're not advocating for, you know, the overthrow of government and all of that. But of course, they don't have to right now because, you know, our guy is there. But it's it is something that's going to be an ongoing problem. And it's something that I'm going to be pushing for. Yeah. In, there, in various I, updates to the courses. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about this because obviously, like, between the three of us, we can solve this country's problems. Right. So sure, sure. I mean, I've been thinking about it. Like, but um, we don't need <clears> to <throat> my pillow guy. Sorry. I have to <laughs> <laughs> um, but really like if we're, if we have these two sides that are so divided, even from what they believe ideologically, we're going to be in a constant back and forth every four to eight years where we're never going to progress as a country. It's going to be undoing what the previous four did, implementing your, your vision. And then all of a sudden it, it changes again. And I, th you know, thinking through some of the things that, that I've learned a lot more about in the past couple of years, like change management and things like that. You don't, you don't bring people along. That's a really condescending way of thinking about things. What you do is engage people in conversations because at the end of the day, we don't all need to think the same, but we need to hear each other and we need to understand why people have the perspective they do. So just thinking through where I grew up, you know, a lot of Trump supporters. Um, but but what are why are they Trump supporters? What are what's the core of why they support Trump or why they support the Republican Party? Because I'm sure that up until Black Lives Matter movement happened, 
being in a predominantly white area, race was the last thing on their minds. And all of a sudden they were confronted with something they've never had to be confronted with before, something that they didn't really think there was a huge problem with. Um, and so where do they stand? So you're challenging their ideas and you're challenging what they they believe in. So how do you turn that into a conversation versus a um, going straight to, well, don't you know about white privilege? You're, you know, you're a recipient of white privilege. Um, you need to be aware of this. Well, if you grew up extremely poor in a trailer in an area that's 99% white and you struggled to make a living your entire life, <clears throat> what do you think, how do you think you're going to react the first time somebody tells you that you're, you had privilege growing up? It's going to draw into question like everything that you thought about yourself. One, you probably never thought that you received an advantage over anybody else. So how can you sit here and tell me that I have privilege? Um, I came up and through this, this, I finally made it to this point in my um, career because they're not thinking in relation to what other populations and what other groups have experienced. They're just thinking through their own personal relation or their own personal situation because we all process things through our own emotions. So having these logical conversations when people process things, you know, 70% through emotions isn't going to work. So how do we hear each other? And how do we like realize we're not all going to be on the same level, but at least have a conversation around it so we understand each other? That's the biggest thing right there. Getting back to the ability to listen. Um, you know, I've always told students that, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. You still have to listen to the other side, because if you don't listen to the other side, you can't justify your beliefs, you know, because you don't understand where they're coming from. Again, you don't have to understand them because you agree with them. You have to know where they're coming from so that you can refute them with your belief system and with facts, you know, and then the other side has to have the ability to do the same thing. And I know that does call into question on how can both sides have facts because that's how it works. You know, I mean, that, that's called a debate, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that's just part of the process, but we need to get back to that. And I don't know how you do that in a, in a, such if it's even possible in such a divided political system um in the environment we're in the the, the whole race conversation is I, it's really central i believe to a lot of the division that we see because what stems from that like you said james you have the privilege aspect um voting laws you know um that's all racial undertones to it um unemployment has racial undertones to it you know the ability to get ahead has racial undertones to it and you know it, if you're like you said a white person that struggled to get by or maybe never fully recovered from the great recession you know i yep. mean it's really hard to tell somebody like that well you're privileged <laughs> but um there's a great book on it um white fragility uh by robin DeAngelis. yeah um, great read uh that really highlights not necessarily she doesn't focus on this idea of privilege as it relates to what's well, because of what you have now it's the way in which which systems were developed and constructed that that really has to be the focus of of that type of conversation once you can get to that conversation obviously race is not an easy thing to talk about um you know in no social issue is ever an easy thing to talk about, especially in a political context. Yep. So. All right. Fascinating times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it will be. I, I, I feel sorry for the poor historians who try to make sense of 2020 and 2021, <laughs> try to dig through all those tweets and all of the just, it's going to be quite a, quite a magisterial tome when that book gets published. 
Well, luckily we we have to wait until what, like twenty, what would it be, twenty fifty one for records to be released um, to the public? And really, I once heard one of my professors said, "Nothing is history if it's uh, less than twenty years old." So it's it's uh, oh, yeah. it's current events. <laughs> but I mean, what is the the statute for the release of um, of uh, executive files? And, I think it's um, 50, 50 years. Or, oh, is it 50? I, I think it's 50, but there's also an exception. I could be wrong on this, but I thought it was 50 years or a death. Or like, a death. Doesn't the person have to have passed? I think that's right. I think that's because I think that's what, well, that wasn't a government thing. I think it, um, I was thinking of the, you know, deep throat with Watergate. He wasn't revealed until after he died, but that was a private agreement with uh, Woodward and Bernstein, I believe. Um, I don't remember what the actual. Um, I think that I think it's an and or, but I then think, it can also right. be extended because the remember the Kennedy files, they you mm. know those were always routinely just extended by. Yeah, I think it's basically if if they can demonstrate that it has some sort of sensitive material in it, I think they can push it out pretty much indefinitely as long as they can make a plausible case. If it continues to be an issue of national security or something like that. Yeah, sources yeah. and methods. Yeah, stuff like that. I don't know. Because we can all submit a FOIA and get wildly redacted documents. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but one of the things that this this latest administration brought into question is, I mean, just look at the use of Twitter. Uh, Twitter, Twitter, God. Twitter. Just look at the use of Twitter or private, uh, private email. I mean, if you aren't maintaining records of that and and government business, which is public business, gets conducted via that and then things are deleted or whatever, then you no longer have a record of that. So that yeah. those are historical records. Yeah. And I always really struggled with the use of a personal Twitter account for, well, especially the president, but really any government official, because what happens when they leave office, those get archived and you can still visit it. And, you know, it has the archived because it's been taken over by, you know, the national records. Um, but on a personal account, you know, and you just go back to their statements, you know, for example, we were told by the White House press secretary that those were official presidential statements. Well, if that's the case, should an official presidential statement be made on a personal Twitter account? Right. And if it is now, what happens that that personal Twitter account has been taken down? You know, uh, yeah. there's an article several years ago that, and I don't remember, I share it in um, 510 or yeah, no, 502 it is, 502 I share the article, but it's the um, the national, or what was it? It was the National Archives. They used to tweet every, or save every tweet that was made. They had a deal with Twitter. Yep. And then they stopped that because, it, I don't remember, was it 2010, 2012? Sometime in which they stopped it because the record was becoming... I mean, obviously, people, this everybody's off? tweeting. So, it, but, but, you know, it, it's now you look at that and think, boy, it's a shame that, that they stopped doing that because of what you would have to add to that record, yeah. you know, and just to make sure that you actually had the record. <laughs> so, but I think that raises, though, you know, you remove the individual from it. That raises a very interesting issue related to social media. You know, what is its role? And is it, you know, go back to sources. Is Twitter a primary source? Right. You know, it raises the interesting point because, in theory, could be. I, I say it is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it just 
I mean, you can still make the distinction between a first-hand account versus someone who's just retweeting something that someone else said. So, I mean, there's still this, I mean, you can still make distinctions there, but yeah, I think, you know, somebody, I think, I mean, these are, you know, gut reactions to things that are happening by people observing them or whether they're observing it face-to-face or observing or recording their impression of a news article or something that comes out or something. So I, I, I think that's all legit for primary sources. And it's going to be a disaster for someone to ever have to search through because, oh, my God, having to, right. <laughs> having to filter I, through a, a eight, 8 billion tweets. Ugh, but I can imagine oral historians using, especially if you're if you're working on topics that have to do with culture or with society or even with politics. I mean, I can imagine oral historians utilizing Twitter in that way as the, the first person voice of the account holder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can go on Twitter today and follow Thomas Jefferson and he'll even tweet back to you, you know, so <laughs> it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it just, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I go in there and talk to Cobra commander sometimes. <laughs> nice. You raise a good point about social media and the internet because, you know, technology, especially being connected um, on the internet has for some people, really democratized voice, right? It's given a lot of people voice. It's also not allowed certain people in certain groups access. Um, But it has created this space where everybody feels like they have a voice and what they say matters. And what happened, which is great, but then by extension, if everybody thinks that what they say matters and there's no real structure around that, then whose voice matters more? So through democratization and creating a quality of voice, like has that led to some of the issues that we're seeing now where, where blogs and people who just go on online and rant or people like um, PewDiePie who start out playing video games and then delve into, you know, the cultural landscape, um, what their voice actually, once they hit a million viewers and, and more, their voice has an impact, but what responsibility is there? And then what, how do we value those voices, which I don't know. They're, I think it's a difficult question. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We just bummed us out. Take that part out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, now this, this brief, you know, 10 minute uh, update has, you know, we've gone 45 <laughs> minutes now. So this very we have a lot well of editing, could, Rob, <laughs> either that, or this is just going to be a new standalone episode. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but well, this is great catching up with you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice, nice chatting. Yeah. It's Maybe cool. this is just a new time. format. We just sit down and chat. <laughs> this is what happens when you get three historians in a room. <laughs> exactly. Conversation goes all over the place. It never comes to an end. <laughs> That's right. That's cool. That, yeah. that works you too. Yeah, our conversations go wrong. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> all right. Well, um, uh, so for now, uh, you know, thanks for joining us, Chris. Sure. Thanks for having me. Great chatting with you guys. And let's do it again sometime. Definitely. Great to see you, Chris. All right. Good to see you as well, James. Take care. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed. And you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. 
For Chris Klein and Jimmy Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourself and each other.